I know as I look around the room, there's several guests here this morning, and uh, we welcome you here this morning. Uh, there is a, a family that's visiting with us this morning from Durham. I checked it out. They're not Duke fans, so they will not have to be offended by me in any way. Uh, so I'm so happy about that. But anyway, we have had a lot of guests over the last several weeks, and we do, we're, we're definitely so grateful that God is sending people our way. Uh, and, and I tell you, it, it, all the more reason that we need to continue to build and do things as it relates to the future of our church. Next week is what we call Vision Sunday. And I'm going to kind of explain where we've been, where we're headed. Uh, and if you don't know that and you haven't been here for a Vision Sunday, I try to do this at least every 12 to 18 months. And uh, that's planned out next week. And it'll kind of tell you some things where we're headed in the future with our missions, with our ministries, and also with the construction that soon starts here soon. So I hope you'll be a part of that next week. Also, be praying for our Guatemalan mission team. I understand there's been some great success uh, as they're there now, uh, but they're on the way home today. So pray for them. I think they get in late this evening. Uh, so pray for them uh, as they're due back in this evening. Well, if you have a Bible, which I hope you do, or a way to see God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. Now, if you've been here for, seven, for the last six weeks, this is the seventh week, we've been on a sermon series called Jesus Like No Other. And what we've attempted to do through this series is basically look at starting with his miraculous birth, his unrivaled authority, that was the next week, his extraordinary words, the words he said, actually sometimes even the words he didn't say, his unmatched way, his resolute mission and transcendent love, and then last week, of course, because it's Easter, his victorious resurrection and today we're looking at his mysterious return. If you look at Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, here's what we find. Jesus said this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now his words that he spoke there in verse 8 follow his resurrection. We know that after his resurrection he appeared here on earth for about 40 more days. He uh, approached uh, many uh, who were his apostles or his disciples. He also uh, was there with 500 at one time. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And now he's about to go back into heaven. And that's what we read in verse 9. Now when he had spoke these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, and here it is, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What the angels are, it appears these are angels, and what they appear to be saying is just like Jesus just has been taken up, how obvious it is, you saw it, he's, he's going to be taken up. He's going to return in a similar fashion, meaning he'll be visibly seen. But not only that, if you know anything about his second coming, you know he's pretty much going to return to the same area in which he left here the first time. So we see the ideas of his return. So today, as I said, we're going to look 
look at his mysterious return. Now turn over to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be there throughout the sermon, Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you've been here these last weeks, you know that the goal that I've set forth with this sermon is the idea that Jesus is who he says he is. I, I, I know there's many people out there, many who've written books, many denominations, many who are trying to redefine who Jesus was. And we see that there's many who have taken us off track as to who Jesus truly was. And so my goal through these seven weeks has been to show you the very words of Jesus. It's Jesus's words. I had a lady come up to me uh, last week and she said, you know, I've never been a part of a church where the pastor used so much scripture. And I didn't know where to be offended or not. I'll be honest with you. And, and, and basically what she was trying to say is you're letting the word speak for us. Well, let me just say this. It's really more than that. I'm letting Jesus speak on his own behalf. And that's what we've been attempting to do over these seven weeks is let's just hear it from Jesus. Who does he say that he is? And that's been the goal of this series. And it also includes his return. So look at the introduction. There is much mystery surrounded the return of Jesus, and yet he talks much about it. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is basically giving a summary of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Many of you have been a part of our Wednesday night study, and we looked at the book of Revelation last year, and, and verses 6 through 19 is what we call the great tribulation period, or the tribulation period. And Jesus, right here in Matthew 24, is basically giving a summary of all those chapters in the book of Revelation. Now, what he's also doing is this. He's also offering information concerning the signs and events which will precede his second coming. He's basically saying, yes, I'm coming back. But before I come back, there's going to be some things out there that you're going to see that will, will be very mysterious, but not only mysterious, there's going to be some things that will signal my return. Now, before we get into that about the text that we're going to look at, I want to explain to you that, that the area in which Jesus left and the area in which he, re, he will return is a very special place. Now, I want to show you this on the map. Go, go ahead and show this video. What you're seeing here is you're taking it from the earth itself to the very central point of where we see most of what is happening as Jesus left and when Jesus returns. What you're looking at is the Temple Mount. Everybody ever heard of the Temple Mount? Okay, right now there's a mosque sitting on the mount. There's actually two of them. There's a big one and a smaller one over to the left there. Or, yeah, to, the, to your left, okay. But what's interesting is this is the place where the, the, the temple used to, used to stand. And guess what? There will be a temple once again that will stand there. And so this is from the Mount of Olives. As you look across, some of you have been to Israel. As you're standing on the Mount of Olives, this is your view of the Temple Mount. Now, it appears that Jesus is going to be taken up, or he was taken up from this area, and he will return to this area. Now, if you look closely, it's kind of hard to see in this picture, there's a gate on this side of that wall, okay? That's called the Eastern Gate. And that is what many people believe that Jesus, when he comes back, is going to come through that gate. Now, what's interesting is this. That gate is blocked right now. You can't get through it. But have you ever noticed Jesus can't get, can Jesus get where he wants to get? 
yeah, he can get where he wants to get. So evidently something's going to happen to where he's going to bust through the gate, okay? I don't know if Satan's closed the gate or whatever, but he's coming through that gate, okay? Now, let me tell you a little bit about this place here. It's phenomenal, some of the information here. The area that we're talking about, Israel, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount area, what we need to understand is it is the geographic center of the world based on Scripture. It is the central part of the world. Now, how many of you thought the United States was? Yeah, yeah, we think everything. But no, this, according to the Bible, is the central location of the whole world. So you have the world, you have the Middle East, you have Israel, you have Jerusalem, and then you come to this Temple Mount. How do we know this? Look at this verse. Ezekiel 5, 5 says this. Thus saith the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. Does that tell you? This is what God considers the center of the world. Now, the plot that we're looking back, go back to that picture, if you will. This Temple Mount that you're seeing here is actually 36 acres. There's 36 acres on that Temple Mount. Now, this, if you really think about it, this is the most fought over area in the world. Matter of fact, if you're keeping up with the news this week, guess what? There were some skirmishes that happened right here on the Temple Mount just this weekend. There's not hardly a month that goes by that there's not some kind of conflict that occurs in this area. This is also the location or the whereabouts of the return of Jesus. So the next time Jesus sets foot on earth, it will be less than a thousand yards, many people say, from this picture. Now, how many of you, that, that's pretty impressive when you think about it. Think about that. Jesus's return. So we see that this is a geographic center of the world. Not only that, it's the salvation center of the world, the spiritual center of the world. There's where the temple stood. If you were to look at this location, based on what many scholars believe, you see the Dome of the Rock, that's a Muslim mosque. If you look to the right, your right, what you'll find is where the temple used to be and where they believe it will be rebuilt, okay? And so, can this mosque and the temple coexist? They actually can based on there is enough room for it to exist. So, we know that the temple was destroyed. Now, I want you to think about this. It was destroyed soon after the executions of Paul and Peter. Once they're executed, they're executed between 64 and 65 A.D. Around 70 A.D., the, the temple is destroyed. Now, let me tell you about the temple. It took approximately 80 years to build. Some people believe that when it was destroyed in 70 AD, it still wasn't complete. I want you to think about that. That's a lot of years. That means if a father began construction uh, over his lifetime, he would have worked there, and then possibly his son in his lifetime to build this temple. It was made of mar white marble and gold trim. It was approximately 90 feet tall from the Temple Mount. There were some stones that weighed, listen to this, 400 tons. That's 800,000 pounds that were considered a part of this temple. How do we know that? Because if you were to look at the Western Wall, what you would find is there are stones there that are that large. If you go from the top of the pinnacle of the, of the temple itself, all the way down to the Kidron Valley, where there's a valley right down that wall, it would have been 180 feet tall. You could have seen it from many places in Jerusalem. 
Now, it's amazing when you think about it, but less than half a mile from that location is believed where Golgotha was. Now, think about that. When you think about where this temple is, it's called, it, was, it was put in the land of Moriah. Guess what else happened in the land of Moriah? Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son, Jesus, on his son, uh, I'm sorry, his son, Isaac, right? But not even in the same area, which we consider the Moriah area, Moriah area, also is where Golgotha was. And so right there we have, really, if you think about it, the spiritual center of the world is all taking place in this area. Next, we see that this location is also the prophetic center of the world. Some of you may not know this, but there's only three religions in the world that have basically the idea of one God. Do you know what they are? Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. Those are the three that have one God. Those are the main religions. Guess what? They all have prophecies about this location. Think about that. They all have prophecies about the location. So it's the prophetic center of the world. Lastly, Jerusalem or Israel, this location, is the chaotic center of the world. And that still hasn't happened yet. As I said before, there's been no place that's ever been fought over more in all of history than this area right here. Now think about it. Only small moments of peace have been in this area. Okay? Small moments. It's always been chaotic. And it will remain that way until Jesus comes back. As I said, in 70 AD, at that, at that time, Titus, a Roman general, brought in an army, destroyed Jerusalem, and destroyed the temple. Now, that's important based on what we're getting ready to read in Matthew chapter 24. So the temple is demolished. The people who are the Jews would, at that point, possibly, in their idea, lost their identity lost basically the, the blessing that they thought from God. So at that point, everything was destroyed. And then, listen to this. In May of 1948, Israel becomes a nation once again. I want you to think about that. Israel becomes a nation. Then in 1967, Jerusalem becomes a part of the area of Israel. But the Temple Mount... This area that we see here is still not really under the control of Israel. Right now, the, the Islam or Muslim, the Muslims have control of that. Now, Israel polices it. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? But the Muslims control everything up there. If you were to go there today, I've been there. Some of you have been there. And you were to go, you will find many people in circles, sitting in circles on this Temple Mount, basically studying the Quran. But you can't take a Bible up there or the Old Testament or the Talmud up there to study it. You'll be called on it. Okay? You don't do that there. They still don't have control of that. But one day, they are going to have control of it. How do we know? Based on the authority of Scripture. Matter of fact, there's a museum-like place actually uh, to, to the left of the picture. If you were to go there today, you'll find that there's a museum-like place. And guess what they have in that museum? All the things that will go into the temple once it's rebuilt. And it's all done according to the way the Scripture describes it. Not only that, there's a, a, there's a, a priest group 
that is prepared to go in. They've been trained to know how to deal with the, the, the things of the temple. Now, I want you to think about that. All that's in place. It's just a matter of the temple being rebuilt. Now, there's many people say the temple will never be rebuilt. Yes, it will. Based on the authority of Scripture, it will be rebuilt. But during the time of Jesus, here's the interesting thing. During the time of Jesus, Herod's temple stood. Matter of fact, you could have seen it. Matter of fact, Jesus did much of his ministry surrounding that temple. But here's the deal. There's a temple that's going to be built. And it's just before Jesus comes back in which everything will get even worse. How many of you have studied the end times? How many of you are glad you showed up here this morning to know that we possibly could be living in the end times and it's going to get worse? That blesses your heart, doesn't it? But anyway, but what we have here. So what we think as it relates to biblical future prophecies, we have what's called the rapture. Jesus is going to come back for his church. He's not going to be visibly seen. We're going to be called up according to scripture. And then you have the second coming when he comes back with his church. So he's going to come for his church, and then he's going to come back with his church. All right? Now, between the rapture and his second coming is what Jesus is getting ready to tell us in Matthew chapter 24. Starting in verse 4, he's basically going to say, here's what it's going to look like. But just before that, we see something else. Look on your outline. First of all, there's the destruction of the temple. In Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. He would have been in the temple area. He would probably not have gone into the temple, but he was definitely there in the temple area. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, it, it, the picture here is not that Jesus didn't know anything about the temple and they're showing him around. That, that's not the picture here. Matter, matter of fact, many translations believe that the disciples were standing there looking at the temple and they were in awe of the temple. How astounding it was. How, how great that it was. And they were there beholding that. And then Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Do you, not, do you not see that there's more to what you're seeing here? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, what he's talking about is 70 A.D., and what he's talking about is when Titus comes in, destroys Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and destroys the temple itself. Now, here's what's miraculous about this. What did Jesus say? Not one stone will be left upon another. Complete destruction. The historian Josephus, who wrote during this time, some of you have read some of his, his writings. But basically, here, here's what we understand about the temple. The temple was made with white marble, but then there was gold trim everywhere. And so when the soldiers came in and set fire to everything, all the things in the temple and everything began to happen, the gold began to melt, and Josephus said it fell into the cracks of the stones. Now, the soldiers wanted the gold. You know what they did? They began to break apart the stones. So from the destruction, you not only see the destruction itself, but guess what? They were looking to, for the gold that had seeped into the cracks of the stones. It had melted down. Josephus gives us that information, and that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. How many of you, that just blows your mind, things like that? 
But then secondly, we see the question of the disciples. Look at verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. Now, here's, here's what is beautiful about this scene. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which would have been the picture that would have been seen down. We would have been looking down. So they're looking down. They're seeing the temple there off in the distance. And Jesus has just said this beautiful structure, this thing that's sitting there that represents God himself to the Jews, it's going to be totally destroyed. And they said this. As they sat there, they came to him. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming? The, the word there is perusa, which means your personal presence. When are you coming back? And of the end of the age? They're basically a- asking questions. How many of you are glad that there's people in the Bible who ask Jesus questions? Aren't you glad? Thomas did that a lot. I'm glad because it brought gl- greater clarity. The disciples asked this question. And then Jesus is going to spend Uh, uh, verses 4 to the end talking about what will surround his coming. Now when he says this, when he says one stone will not be upon the other, he's basically saying that is setting in motion what's going to happen at the end of the age. The temple's going to be destroyed in 70 AD. That's approximately 37 years after he's talking to them about this. Okay? Peter and Paul have been executed. John will actually hear about the temple being destroyed and some of the other disciples, but all of a sudden that sets it off. Then there comes something else that is yet to come. And that's what we find in verses four and following. So look on your, on your outline, the explanation of Jesus. He begins to answer the question and he basically gives them the signals of the end. There's going to be certain signals that are going to occur. Now, for you who who like to to follow careful notes, if you write this down, chapter 24, verses 3 through 14 is what is called the tribulation period. And then 24, 15 through 28 is the great tribulation. How many of you know that some, some writers have two different versions or two different things? The first three and a half years is the tribulation period. And then the last three and a half years is the great tribulation period. And again, what is Jesus doing? He's basically summarizing what's going to be presented to John when he's on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation 6 through 19. And so he's summarizing these things, and they they fit perfectly when you bring it all together. So what's happening here? Skip down to verse 8. This is what Jesus said. He's getting ready to say, verses 4 through 7, and he says this about those things. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Some of your translations may say birth pains. That is the idea here. Now, how many of you who've been around, how many of you have ever had a baby? (laughs) Okay, raise your hand. Okay, you've had a baby. How many of you have been around someone who's about to have a baby? Okay, you've been there. Okay, we're kind of on the same page. How many of you know before the baby comes, there's signals? You know that, right? I'm not going to get graphic. I'm not going to talk about signals, okay? But you know something is happening when what happens? When there's birth pains. That tells you something is happening. He's using the same wording here. He's basically saying there will be signals. There will be signs that will relate to me coming into this world. Now, let's look at the economy of this world. How many of you would agree that the the economy of this world is pain and suffering? You know that, right? That's tough, isn't it? 
It's hard to say it, but it is. The economy of this world is pain and suffering. And pain can literally lead to more pain and suffering. We know that. That's, a, that's the desperation of this world. But in some cases, listen to this. Pain is the beginning of something special and something joyous. When you came into this world, someone went through a lot of pain, more than likely. Unless you took the drugs, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> there was some pain associated with the joyous moment that you arrived. So pain equated a joyous moment. When we die, guess what? Most of the time, many times, there's pain associated with death, which leads to what? For those who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, a joyous moment. That comes after, okay? Here's what Jesus is saying. Before I come, the signal will be pain and suffering. Just like before a mother gives birth to that special child, just before we leave this world and enter in to the presence of the Lord and leave the pain and suffering behind. Jesus is saying there's a similarity between me coming, but before I come, it's going to get a whole lot worse as it, before it gets better. And so that is what he's talking about here. Now, what does that look like? So look at the signals of the end. First of all, growing deceptions. How many of you agree we're living in a very deceptive time? Oh, my goodness. It is amazing how deceived we are. It's amazing. And I'm not going to get into it, but you can turn on the news. You can hear where all the fighting is happening over the sensitivity and all these different things. And there's a growing deception. The Bible says literally at the end of time, Paul says this, there's going to be strong delusions that will come upon the earth. I've never seen a more deluded time than where we live right now. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, he talks about some of this. He says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Don't fall into the deception. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And to me, what we're seeing here is there's all these people, and we said this weeks ago when, when, as it relates to this series, there's so many people, how many of you agree with this? So many people creating Jesus in their own image. How many of you see that? Oh, he's, Jesus, he, he's love. He's all love, and he is. We know that, right? We've experienced his love, but he's not just love, he's holy. His holiness demands judgment, and guess what? He's, he's going to be the judge of the world, too. We see all this. It's so clear to us. Be careful when you begin to listen to those people who've created Jesus in their own image. Because many times it's what we want to hear. But Jesus is saying something else, especially here. Next, the signals of the end. There's mounting wars. Verse 6, and you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Do you know what that literally means? It's going to be very evident to you, to you there's wars out there. How many of you agree that the Ukraine-Russian conflict is right there? It's, it's in front of us. Our heart goes out to what's happening there. We've been praying for those people. It's really sad to watch. But what he's saying here, he says it's going to be unlike anything you've ever heard. You're going to have wars that are obvious, and then you're going to have wars that are still happening. And, and because this war is so important... It's going to almost mean that that's the only thing happening in the world, but it's not. There's going to be wars here, wars here, wars here, wars here. It's everywhere. Isn't it amazing how news cycles work? How many of you have seen news cycles? 
and, and you begin, and, and it'll, they'll stick to one theme, and you're sitting there, and it's like, oh my goodness, look at the peril we're living in. Look at this. And then all of a sudden, the news would just drop the story. And we're sitting there like, what happened to that? That's not important anymore. <laughs> I mean, if you know what I'm talking about. And then something else will rise up, and they'll focus on this. What he's saying is there will be those times, but surrounding those times will be other things that will be evident too. Wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. It's getting bad. Jesus is saying this. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, how many of you know wars is all, have always been here on the earth? Oh, yeah. Since 3,600 B.C., it's estimated that there's been 14,500 wars. Now, think about this. 92% of the time since 3,600 B.C., 92% of the time there was a war on earth somewhere. That's amazing. 92% of the time. Only 8% time, times of peace. All the wars put together, they estimated since 3600 B.C., there's been 3.6 billion people killed with these wars. Now, I want you to think of this. There's going to come a war at the end of this that could come close to this number. Isn't that amazing? The final war. When the Antichrist, you've heard of him before, right? Is going to come on the scene, lead the nations of the war of the world against Israel, that place we just showed you. That's the reason it's the central part of the world. That's the reason God says it is. It started there, and it's going to end there. And it's called the Battle of Armageddon. And that's what we find. And so we see the war will mount, and wars will mount, and it'll come, and it'll keep coming. But then there's a big war. When the nations of the world will rally against God's people, and the Antichrist will lead them into this. Next, the signals of the end, despairing sufferings. In verse 7, the second part, it says, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. The word various places literally means when one stops, another will happen. Some, translation, some commentators basically say there's going to be earthquakes taking place in places we've never seen earthquakes. It's going to show you this is going to be uncommon what is going to happen, like the world has never seen before. And then it leads us to the persecutions of the end. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Now, let me say this. Much of prophecy has a meaning for the day in which it's said and also for a future to come. You see that a lot in Scripture. And it appears to be similar to this. The word you there, could it, have fit, could it have been befitting for Peter who was sitting there that day? Yeah, did he, did he lose his life as a result? Yeah, 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 he, he's going to be taken out. But the word you here is actually talking about future believers. And the, guess what? That still hasn't happened yet. And he's talking about you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. How many of you can see the coming persecution? Jesus. Think about Jesus. He, he, he provided the way, our only way. 
to escape pain and suffering and all these things, to go into that next world. He provided all that, yet there's people who hate his name. Next, the persecution of the end, threatening divisions. It's speaking of deep divisions. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 10, it says, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Now again, do I think Jesus could come back at any time? I don't think there's really a whole lot preventing him from coming. Some people would say, well, the temple's not quite yet built. I mean, well, that could happen. You're right. I mean, it took 80 years to build the second temple or the third temple. You're right. It might take time. But the point is this. Jesus can come back when he wants to come back, right? I mean, he, he can make things happen. We know that. But there's one thing that we're seeing here in our day and age. How many of you have ever seen our nation more divided than it is today? I mean, some of you have lived longer than I have. Maybe you thought the 60s were a great divide, and there was. It was race wars and all those type things. But when you look at what's going on today, it's really that mentality, you're either for me or against me. You either love what I represent, you either love what I'm doing, or you hate me. There's no middle ground. How many of you see that? That's the world we live in. We live in a deep divide. And he's saying these things will get worse. Next, the persecutions of the end, expanding disinformation. How many of you are seeing that today? You can't trust much of the information that's out there. How many of you have a hard time knowing what to trust? It's going to get worse, according to this. Matthew 24, 11, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. It doesn't say a couple of pro false prophets. It says many. They're going to come out of the woodwork. And they're going to be given a platform like they are today, if you really think about it, until you won't even know what to believe. The persecution of the end, increasing apathy. In Matthew 24, verse 12, it says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. How many of you, it warms your heart to see glimmers of goodness out there in our society we hear all this bad news and how everybody's treating everybody bad i mean i read the other day where this this i mean this obviously a bad guy went and beat up this grandmother i'm sitting there like who does that but what this is talking about is talking about those times are going to get worse it, it, it's talking about it's going to be hard to find a story of goodness because all of a sudden, everything's going to turn. It's, it's basically describing a dog-eat-dog -dog world is basically what we're seeing here. But then we see the witnesses of the end. And the first thing we see there is enduring proof. Look at Matthew 24, verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. What we're seeing here, and we hear this, this is actually, something like this is actually said in the book of Hebrews. And what this is saying is, basically, if you're a true follower of Jesus, if you're someone who, who's receiving the persecutions, and it's all because of the name of Jesus, that the proof that that is really, truly who you are, identifying with Jesus, it's going to show up because you endure to the end. It also says that there's going to be witnesses of Jesus till the bitter end. They will still be around. They'll literally be able to look up into the sky and see Jesus coming back. How many of you know that if you study scripture, 
detailed enough, you'll find that Jesus has always, or God's always had a witness here on earth, identifying with his goodness. Knowing the ark, all those times. You see, as dark as it got, there was always a witness. But it's not only a witness, the enduring proof, there's also a surviving gospel. In Matthew 24, 14, it says, in this gospel of the kingdom, now, now get, get the picture, in the midst of the tribulation period, in the midst of when chaos is in the world like we've never seen before, there's never been suffering like it's going to be here. But in the midst of it, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Think about that. As a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. I've heard many people say, you know something, we need to hurry up and evangelize the world. we got to get into every nation because once we get into every nation, Jesus has got to come back because that's what it says. That's not what this is saying here. What this is saying here is in spite of the hell here on earth, the message of the gospel is still going to be out there inviting people to come to him. It will endure. It will be there. It will be preached and the book of Revelation gives us clues to how. Think about it. Despite the condition of the world, God will have his witnesses. But you know who's going to come to the forefront during this time? The Jews. The ones who will acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. The Bible says 144,000 flaming evangelists will be making the gospel known. How many of you ever met a Jew who's come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? They are some dynamic people. They really are. Paul was one of those, remember? You know how dynamic he became? And there's many others. I mean, their faith is just so pure and so real and so dynamic. And there's going to be 144,000 of them out there doing this. And so therefore, in the midst of the greatest mess of, the world, of this world, the greatest message for the world will still be available. How many of you are blown away by that? What this shows me is the enemy, when he is at work, still can't extinguish the work of God. No matter what he does, no matter what he throws at it, he still can't win at all. Next, we see the abominations of the end. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that literally means when you see false worship, that means when you see blasphemy at its worst, spoken of by, the Daniel, by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. This is basically saying when Daniel was in the holy place, that means everything that came out of his mouth came directly from God. And he's standing there in that. He's saying, when you see this, he's basically saying, get ready, get ready. And then it says, whoever reads, let him understand. He's basically saying, you got to get this. If you're alive during this period, if you, if you somehow wind up in the tribulation period and you're there and you see this take place, hold on. It's getting ready to get bad. If you read the book of Revelation and some of the things you read in Daniel, what you'll find out is basically the idea that there's going to be some defilement in the temple. That's the reason, one reason we know the temple will be rebuilt. Now, there's a, there was someone in, basically in 168 B.C. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He believed, this guy believed he was the embodiment of Zeus. Zeus, Greek gods, right? Embodiment of Zeus. He went and put a temple of Zeus in the temple. And he forced people to worship it. That is one form of the abomination of desolation. 
Okay? So that's one form of it. The Bible says it's going to happen again. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can write that down, you'll see there's a description of the Antichrist, and there's going to come this point where he is going to demand, or at least a false prophet is going to demand the worship of the people of this world. It's going to be right there in the Jewish temple. And that's when the, this is when the Jews are going to turn their back on the Antichrist. He's going to sign the peace agreement with them at first. That hadn't happened ever. And then he's going to turn, they're going to turn their back on him, and he's going to turn their back on them. Right there. Basically, you've got the halfway point of the tribulation period. And, and Jesus, he's just summarizing what's being said in the book of Revelation. Next, the warnings of the end. In Matthew 24, verse 16, when you see this happen, when, when this plays out, get ready. Then the, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You need to get out. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of the house. Don't worry about anything. You need to get out. And let him who's in the field, don't go back to get your clothes. Head out. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Sad commentary, isn't it? It's going to be bad because you got to get out. you got to run. He's after you. And pray that your flight may be not in winter when it's harder to get around. And then he says this, or on the Sabbath. Let me tell you something about Israel. When you go to Israel and you visit there, there's some things that happen. We arrived, I remember we arrived in Jerusalem on the Sabbath when we went there. And, and I couldn't figure out because we just got off the buses. There were about 50 of us in our group. We just got off the, tr- the buses and we're, we're going into the temple and there's this long line from the elevator all the way back into the lobby, almost to the outdoors. And I'm like, what is taking so long? Come to find out, you don't want to do a whole lot on the Sabbath. What it is, is that on the Sabbath, they program, they program the elevators where you don't have to press a button because they believe if you press a button, that's work. You with me? And so what do you have to do? You have to sit there and wait to it go to every floor and open, stay open, and close, open, and close. You say, that is ridiculous. To find a taxi on the Sabbath, it's going to be tough. That's what he's talking about here. Isn't it amazing how specific the Bible can be? Especially on the Sabbath, when, when things are shut down, when things aren't happening. Oh, oh, God forbid, hope it don't happen on that day. It's hard to get around. What he's talking about is this is ground zero for the Antichrist and the work of the Antichrist and everything. Some Jews, however, the Bible says in the book of, uh, I think it's Ezekiel or Jeremiah, basically says many will flee to the mountains and they will be preserved. It actually says a third of them, that many will go down with this first thing in which the Antichrist turns against God's people. Next, the casualties of the end, Matthew 24, 21. Then there will be a great tribulation such as no one's ever seen, the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. He's basically saying if it continued on its present path, All would be destroyed, but God is going to intervene. Next, we see the delusions of the end, Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive is possible even the elect. The elect are those who've joined with Christ, those who are believers in Christ. Some of them will be pulled aside. See, I've told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, 
He is in the desert, the Messiah, basically. Do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe. He's basically saying it's a trap. They're coming for you. And then we see the culminations of the end. And what we see here is the unveiling return. And, of course, we know it's Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, what he's doing, he's making a contrast. He's basically saying, there's many who's going to say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. You need to follow me. I'm the one. But then verse 27, he says, no, it's going to be obvious when I come back. Here's what he says. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. He's basically saying it will be obvious. Every eye will see. And then we see the culmination of the end, the impending judgment. 24, look at verse 28. For, where, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagle, some translations say the vultures will be gathered together. What he's talking about, he's, he's actually kind of skipped over the whole idea of the battle of Armageddon. And he's basically saying the carcasses are laying there. The war has already taken place. I'm coming back, however, around that time. I'm the one who's going to intercede. The enemy will be fallen. The birds will ravage their bodies. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That means there's going to be chaos everywhere. It's going to be cosmic. The stars will fall from heaven. and The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Some people say that this is a nuclear-type holocaust that could take place. I, I don't know. I'm just reading you what the Bible says here. But here's what's interesting. It's not just the Bible saying this. It's not John just receiving it from the angel. Who's speaking here? Jesus himself. The culmination of the end, the agonizing realization. Look at verse 30. Then the, sun, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great joy. Basically, everyone at that moment will wake up and say, we missed it. Oh, my goodness. What have we done? We've aligned ourselves with the wrong side. <laughs> That's the picture we see there. But then, I don't have time to read this. Write this down. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, actually tells you specific details about when Jesus visibly appears in the sky. And guess who's coming with him? The church. Who makes up the church? Believers in Christ, followers of Jesus, make up the church. We're going to come back with him. We're going to be a part of the army that's going to defeat the nations. But here's what's cool. We won't have to pull a sword. We won't have to press a button. It'll all be destroyed just from his spoken word. He will come to set it all right. That is a part of the mysterious return of our Lord. So look at the application. Jesus is coming back. How many of you believe that? He's coming back because he said he will. And everything he has promised has happened and will happen. The question is this, are you ready for his return? Are you ready? How do you get ready? You come to him on his terms. You come to him on his terms. How do you do that? You repent of your sins. You turn from your sin. You turn to him. You turn from that thing that, that holds in life, that, that it's not going anywhere. And you turn to your salvation found in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth, and no one comes to the Father. There's no hope for you unless you turn to me. That is the invitation. That is the salvation. Would you stand with me at this time? Bow your heads. Father, we just come to you right now, and we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for who you are. And Lord, when we look at this series, Lord, you, Lord, you, you know that our, our goal has not been to present our ideas it's been not to present the, uh, create uh, Jesus in our own image. Our goal for this series has all along been that Jesus will speak for himself as to who he is. Father, I thank you that we have a word that's not just about Jesus. It's the very words of Jesus. Father, I thank you for those that are standing in this room who are ready for his return. They know that he's coming back. They know. Father, I thank you for them. But Father, for those that may be here today, someone that may be here today that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they're not a follower of Jesus. They've never turned from their sin and turned to you for salvation. I pray before they leave here today that they would talk to myself here, Father. Lord, I pray that they will invite you into their life. Father, we thank you for for the great salvation that comes through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you sing with us?